0: salutations welcome one and all you are listening to uh something i don't know how (laughs) that's take Take two take take two yeah uh you're listening to culture bop selects the official pop culture and media discussion podcast of culture bop we've got a great episode for you today this is episode eight and i am your host the one and only bebop man josh McMullen, and i am joined today by a very special goat ghost yeah uh guest host Ooh. the man from japan himself mr shay layton how's it doing how's it going I, it's well, too it's, early it's for all right. this shit it's right it's
1: it's early for you man i'm doing great um i'm feeling kind of energized I just got back from a uh going away party for one of my good friends so we were singing karaoke for a few hours and I'm hopped up on water because everyone else is drinking and I, I have a test tomorrow so I wasn't drinking and
0: feeling good man yeah yeah uh so I know that this is like a kind of cliche but karaoke is like a huge thing in Japan right absolutely uh one of the cool things about Karaoke, or
1: as they say in Japanese, karaoke, is that unlike the American version where you all pile into a bar and you embarrass yourself or you slay and you're the local town hero, you rent a room out and you and your friends go in there. You can go in there by yourself and just practice. And um, they have different types of rooms and different types of locations here. So you can get some with like a tambourine and a maraca. We went to one of the karaoke bars tonight. We didn't get the room, unfortunately, but there's an actual studio room where you can do karaoke, and they have a drum set in there, and they have other instruments, so you can actually play along while you're singing, which is pretty cool, but that room was taken tonight, and I was pretty pissed about it, to be honest with you. Uh,
0: That's unfortunate.
1: Yeah, you know, there's always next time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's always next time. Yeah, Um, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, cool. Well, uh... Outside of that, have you been up to anything uh, interest- interesting?
1: Um, yeah, we talked about me and the guys, um, my buddies Josh—not you, but you are my buddy, Josh and Rich. We talked about video games for five plus hours today, and it's kind of funny. We were doing uh, uh, sorry, sorry for I I don't like you know plugging myself or anything like that, but we I were doing know. recording an episode for Psychonauts Two. Got through almost the entire episode down to a minute before we were done. And Josh realized he forgot to hit record. Oh no. (laughs) And my backup audio wasn't working for some reason and neither was his. So we did a whole episode of nothing. And so we have to do it again next week.
0: Oh man. Uh, uh, One of our very first episodes that we recorded for hunting pixels, it wasn't exactly that situation, but like the audio the backup audio wasn't recording for whatever reason. And the audio that we got from uh, one of our mics was just completely fucked. So we ended up having to record the whole episode over again. That Uh, is, yeah, that's rough, man. Like the, the only other thing that you can do
1: in that, well, other two situations is either cut the person out and cut the parts of the conversation that they were a part of, or just have them re-record their whole parts. Like, like they're there, but they're doing it by themselves, which sounds like the absolute worst. So, oh yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I I don't know how people yeah. do that.
1: Yeah, I, I I don't. Yeah, I don't think I could do that. I'm not that professional. But I I mean, it's an hour of our time, so it's not the end of the world. And the thing was, uh, we we're all running on fumes. We had just talked about video games for four hours straight, so uh, then we went into that episode. So we're like, you know what? It's not it's not that bad. We can do better anyway. So. Yeah. But other than that, I have a Japanese test tomorrow that uh I am not studying for. <laughs> oh,
0: <God laughs> which Lord. that's
1: okay. I've studied a lot for it already, so um I'm excited for that and to get it over with. Cool.
0: Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll yeah. try to get you out of here at a reasonable nah. time. No, nah, it's all right, man. Uh um, long as we
1: need to go. I'm always I'm always hyped to talk about what we're about to talk about, so y- that's perfectly okay with me.
0: Awesome. Well that's good to hear. Um yeah, let's jump right in. Uh, so, Well, oh, wait, man. How have you been? What have you been up to? Uh, not much, to be honest with you. Um, I'm trying <laughs> to get in the last couple of games before we get to our Game of the Year episodes for Hunting Pixels. Um, nice. So I'm what, playing... What games? Uh, I'm playing Kena, uh, Bridge mm. of Spirits, and uh, Life is Strange True Colors, because those yep. are both relatively short games. And then I'm going to try my hardest to finish Deathloop, and that'll... That'll probably run at me through the the last two ish weeks or so, but that's uh, that, that's that's a lot of games. Have you made it around to Eastward? Uh, way? Eastward. I think I've heard of that, but I don't think it's been like on my radar. Did you? Uh, I know you know we talked about this a lot. You know, Ikenfell. Did you? Yeah.
1: play that. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the hell out of Ikenfell. I. I would hazard a guess and say you would love eastward and granted you probably don't have time to play it this year which is perfectly fine but at the beginning of next year you absolutely should make time for that game
0: so okay yeah i'll definitely look into that it was on the switch it looks like okay
1: yeah yeah i believe it's on switch and steam i want to say maybe i'm wrong about that but i have it on the switch uh it's been perfect for me i can chip away at it slowly um, I'm, I'm, I don't want to tell you anything about the game just because I I went into it pretty much blind and I'm glad that I did. So
0: it's a fantastic game. If you liked Ikenfell, I think you will like this game. Cool. Uh, I just noticed it was published by Chucklefish and those are the guys who did Wargroove, right? That is correct. Um, I don't know if it's that they're
1: that they created or they produced this game. It might be that they produced. I'm not sure. I'd have to look into that.
0: Okay. Yeah. It according to this Wikipedia article, it looks like they published Eastward, and it was developed by someone Pix, Pixpill. That know. sounds right. Yeah. Okay. That sounds right. So. Yeah. Um. Cool. You have yeah. Three moment. Check that out.
1: It's a longer I, game, though. It's like twenty hours. Oof, uh, that's so long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. That that's not even counting all the side content that there is. Oh, okay. So.
0: Well, still, that's that's nothing. Like I I ran through uh, Guardians of the Galaxy over the past week. It took me it took me about a week to do. But like, I I mean, that's like a twenty hour game. I I like that kind of stuff. I I can't do like Skyrim and like The Witcher and like all of those like games that are like hundred plus hours long. I can't do those anymore.
1: I used to be able to do that, not anymore. Yeah,
0: it's different now we're adults, right? Like, we don't have the time that we had when we were kids. I remember, like, distinctly, like, spending hundreds and hundreds of hours in Final Fantasy VIII, and, like, I can't do that anymore.
1: Yeah, same. And, like, it's kind of interesting how things happen when you go from child to teenager to an adult. For me, like, to be honest with you... And to give you a natural segue, um, I actually didn't start liking what we're going to talk about—the band Pink Floyd—until adulthood. Oh, to be honest with you, yeah. And like, my dad was a huge avid fan of them when I was growing up, and I just I couldn't really get into them minus two songs, which were uh, comfortably numb Mm -hmm. and "Learning to Fly," which was one of their newer songs. That was, I believe, off the first album, Division Bell. When um roger waters left
0: yeah i was gonna say after waters left right
1: yeah and that was actually those two songs were the the pulse version were the ones that i liked Mm. specifically and i don't know why that was what i liked as a kid my dad used to listen to that cd a lot when i was younger so maybe i associated with that but it wasn't until adulthood that i really started to appreciate pink floyd
0: okay well i mean fair enough um so, I, I mean, yeah, that's a good way to kind of get into it. You know, we're here again uh, discussing music. Uh, last time was for an album that I'm I'm sure Shea wishes he was here for. <laughs> uh, m- moving biter. Pictures. Yeah. Um, great album. That's nah, all good. But yes, uh So, I asked you here to uh, kind of take your love of music and your experience as a drummer, uh, because I... Am an idiot when it comes to talking about like music. I can't. I explained this before on the other episode, but I don't know like musical terms and what have you. Um, but I needed someone here with music experience, so then I could, <laughs> you know, uh, kind of balance out my my dumbness uh, with something I, that sounds coherent. I
1: don't know how much help I'm going to be there because <laughs> I don't. I don't have a lot of music terminology. I. I know certain things, and that's just over the years I've kind of amassed certain terms or learned certain things here and there. I don't have any classical training in music other than elementary and junior high school, and I don't really remember any of that. But I do know some stuff, and I will do the best I can to kind of fill in the gaps where I can. Okay. In the parts where I can't, we'll just throw up our hands and say, well, we like this. And that's, you know, that's, that's how it is. So
0: yeah, I, yeah. I tend to, uh, like when I think about music or when I talk about music, I'm like, yeah, this sounds really cool. Like the way that the guitar is fuzzy. And then other people are like, yeah, the time signature. And I'm like, I don't know what the fuck a time signature is. I just, okay. Well, maybe I'll do a little bit better explaining than
1: you. <laughs> <laughs> not much, but a little bit better.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. well, yeah, if, uh, if you're not aware based on what we've already said, or the thumbnail, or the title of this episode. Uh, We are talking about one of the greatest albums of all time today. Um, We're talking about 1973's The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Um, So, it's interesting to me that you told me that this is uh, something that you came to, like, later in life. What do you remember being your first exposure to this album in particular?
1: So, um... I mean, I'm sure a lot of people can speak to this being kind of their experience. So I was in college, and I'll make this as succinct as I can. I was in college, and I had just met a girl on the eve of breaking up with another girl that I was in a relationship with. Not my proudest moment, but I had met that girl as I was about literally a day or two away from breaking up with my current girlfriend and this girl and i started hanging out just every day and she was kind of a hippie and one of her favorite bands was pink floyd and so as as we all do we try and accommodate and learn more about the other person by learning about their interests and so we had listened to some pink floyd here and there i was like oh it's not bad you know not my favorite it's not bad But there was this cover band in the college town I lived in, in Bozeman, Montana, called Pinky uh, Pinky and the Floyd. Very, very awesome cover band. And they were playing at this this venue called Pine Pine Creek, which was about a 30 to 45 minute drive away from our college town. It's kind of up in the mountains. It's nestled away in this little copse of trees. And there were some storage units turned into kind of glamping areas for the night. And you could just pitch a tent in their campground as well. And you get there and there's a smell of just fresh um, coniferous trees. And they had strewn these, these lights through the trees and they had this, this nice stage just kind of packed in, in between the trees and Pinky and the Floyd was performing. And I was pretty excited at that point because it was, it was a, you know, time I got to spend with my girlfriend at the time. And I'd started to appreciate Pink Floyd at that time. And watching this, this cover band, just nail these songs. Obviously you can't recreate David Gilmore, Roger Waters voice perfectly, but they were doing a damn good job. And on top of that, it was just all these generations of people who had this love for this band had just gotten together to listen. And everybody was just having a good time and, people who didn't know each other were just putting their arms around each other, just singing these songs that a lot of people grew up loving and younger generations like me and even younger than that were kind of coming in, starting to learn and have this fond and deep appreciation for this music. And that was kind of my first real moment of wow, I really love this band. And I can't remember exactly it was shortly before or after this concert that I listened to this album and i had heard so much about this album dark side of the moon i i'm always the kind of person i'm kind of this this dickhead who whenever somebody says oh this thing is really good i'm like fuck that i'm not going to like it just because i don't know i'm very obstinate in that way and so for the longest time i kind of avoided this album because i just heard so much praise about it and so when i finally listened to it i was like you know what those people were right this is an amazing album <laughs>
0: and uh I never looked back. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, I mean fair enough. Um so my my first exposure to this album is very much the entire opposite of your <laughs> story. Uh so I I grew it was up with a girl you hated that introduced yeah, you, <laughs>
1: right? Beat the shit out of you yep. to to speak <laughs> to me.
0: Um no well uh well, uh, that's a little dark. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say something, but uh, we won't. Um,
1: say it off n- the air. N- no, so done.
0: my uh, my father, he was very much into classic rock, and so I grew up listening to all of these bands, you know, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, you know, Leonard Skinner. like all of these, like, classic rock artists, and, like, that's just what I listened to growing up. Um, and I – I kind of fell in love with uh, Zeppelin, and from there, like my my musical taste just kind of like diverged, like because I was also trying to listen to sort of like contemporary stuff at the same time. So like I had fallen in love with you know Blink One Eighty Two and uh, Jimmy Eat World and you know stuff like Sum that. Forty One, Some Simpl- Forty One, Charlotte. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> all of that stuff.
1: <laughs> Me too, man. Me too.
0: Um. But uh I started I I really genuinely think that the if if I remember this correctly the first album I ever bought with my own money was Led Zeppelin 4 mm-hmm. and so like I started like reaching out and going back and listening to full albums as opposed to the singles that I heard growing up and it was around this time where I was doing this sort of experimentation with like like learning what I liked in music and stuff like that that uh, the old like internet rumor about if you listen to the dark side of the moon with, uh, Fantasia. with what? Fantasia. No, uh, uh wizard of Oz. Oh, I, yeah. Have you ever heard that? I've heard Fantasia, but not wizard of Oz. Okay. Okay. So yeah, with it back in the day on the internet, there was this rumor that if you, if you started, uh, um, Dark Side of the Moon, as the lion is coming up in the MGM logo uh, with uh, Wizard of Oz, that the album is supposed to track perfectly with certain things. Like, there's an instance where Dorothy starts running as um, uh, Roger Waters is saying, Run. Uh, and I forget the song, but anyway, like, certain things would track up, uh, like, sync up. So I was like, All right, well, let me try this. And. Lo and behold, parts of the things did work out, but I was more enamored with the music. And so since then, this has become like a a staple for me. I probably listen to this album at least once a year, uh, like all the way through. Uh, I adore this album. Um, I love those albums that, you know, you just you have to go
1: visit every year. This is that like I agree with you. This is ever since I got into this album. This is one of those albums for me that I got to make the yearly rounds on.
0: Yeah, yeah. It it's just a staple, man. Like uh, it's so good. We'll, but we'll we'll get into that for sure. Um, so I I thought it would be interesting uh, to go ahead and get into sort of the a brief history of Pink Floyd up to, um, Dark Side, Dark side, of, the side of the Moon. Of the moon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So they were formed in London in 1964, uh, and their lineup started without David Gilmore. Uh, He didn't join until 1967. But uh, at the time, Sid Barrett was the group's sort of leader, um, and he took them from like these small sorts of like. like pubs and stuff like that to releasing their first album and finding some like mild success. They had two charting singles off that album, uh, which was titled uh, "Piper at the gates of dawn. And that album actually charted in the UK for them, uh, which was really cool. But he ended up having to step away in 1968 for mental health reasons. And that left the iconic lineup of Roger Waters, David Gilmore, um, Nick Mason and uh, Richard Wright, And that lineup, uh, that core four would be the ones who go on to have that prolific output in the seventies. Um, and really where you started seeing significant growth with them in particular was with 1969's Uma Guma, or I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, and that's where they started finding, uh, chart success. The next year, uh, I believe it might've been 1971. They had, oh, what's the name of the album? I'm Ooh, floundering I'm, I'm here. I'm
1: spacing it as well. Uh,
0: to, I'll, I'll look for you. Just keep going and I'll okay. look
1: for you while, while you're talking.
0: Well, they had uh they had another album that uh, gained on what Umaguma had done. And uh, from there, they just released um, Dark Side of the Moon.
1: They had three albums in between
0: Dark Side oh, of the Moon metal. and Guma, Guma. They had Met-
1: Adam Hart Mother, which was nineteen seventy, Metal mm-hmm. seventy one, and Obscured by Clouds in seventy two.
0: Oh yeah, I forgot about. Uh, I don't think I've listened to that. I know of it, but I don't think I've actually ever listened to Obscured by Clouds. Well, Obscured
1: by Clouds. It's yeah. pretty decent. It's pretty decent. I've I've listened to it once. Didn't really stick out. Adam Heart Mother is an interesting album. If you've never heard that one
0: yeah i not a huge fan the way I am of like me, i i really genuinely think that metal is a great album uh from start to finish it's i don't think it has a whole lot of lyrics it's mostly um uh, uh instrumentals yeah. but i i i really enjoy that and then obviously from dark side on it I'm like i'm in on it but yeah
1: and i I think that's where a lot of people are at too metal really saw them starting to transition a little bit. Even David Gilmour has talked about this in multiple interviews throughout the years of they were kind of imitating what bands during that time were doing. Obviously primarily were influenced by what the Beatles were doing at that time, but mm-hmm. they were also trying to kind of stand out in some regards too. So there was a lot of, uh, as David Gilmour would put it, a lot of, uh, noodling on the guitar, trying to figure things out and then it wasn't until metal that they started to look at well it's fun to play these instrumental breaks but maybe we should pare them down a little bit and having more direct goal or direct message that we want to put forth
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and uh, it's funny that all of this actually started after uh, Sid Barrett left the band. Like they sort of like it's almost like there's a very clear delineation line between like what they were doing with Sid Barrett and then what they did starting in the 70s and going forward.
1: Yeah, you're right. It, it makes a lot of sense too. I mean, Sid Barrett. Um, anybody who's a even a minor fan of Pink Floyd knows that Sid Barrett had a a massive uh, drug problem, and I think that that there was a lot of brilliance there from Mm -hmm. that but there also was unfortunately um that like you said the mental health issues and i think that unfortunately that they didn't have a clear directive of where they wanted to go i think you listen to some of those albums and they're really interesting and they're really for its time is very avant-garde hearing a lot of what they were trying to do at that time but they they didn't quite pick when to employ that and it wasn't really until this album dark side of the moon that they started to figure that stuff out
0: yeah yeah uh and i mean speaking of that like 1973 comes around and they released this uh it, it released in march 1st but there was actually a um i i was reading this somewhere earlier but uh th- there was actually some sort of like mix-up where the uh music critics got access to it on like the 27th of February or something like that. And the band was very pissed because it wasn't like complete. Um, but even with that said, like the critics were really positive about it and commercially it just took off. It really, really weird. Sorry. I had a like thing in my throat. Um, but it remains in the billboard top 200 for 736 consecutive weeks. That's fucking nuts. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and since then it's continued to chart on and off and it, so I was reading this also it, so it's has like a combined total on the billboard 200 for 958 weeks as of July of this year. But, uh, I was reading somewhere that had a combined total of uh, 1,716 weeks across two different charts, and I was like, that's fucking crazy. Yeah, that's insane, dude. That's 736 consecutive weeks is
1: almost 14 years, give yeah. or take.
0: Yeah, I think the last time it appeared in the top 200, it said, was in July of 1988. Yeah. That's, that's nuts. That's amazing. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And one of the th- the cool things about kind of the, I don't know if this is the best place to talk about it, but one of the cool kind of interesting historical things about this album is that you had mentioned that the critics kind of got an early access to it. One of the things that they did with this album that I don't think you really see that much anymore, at least to this scale, is when they had they had conceived of this album about a year before they even went in to start recording and they had some demos that they recorded in Roger Waters uh, garden shed. He had converted his garden shed to this mini studio and got some demos out, but they had taken this entire almost this entire album completely out on tour a year before and would just play it mm-hmm. and listen to the fan response and they would slightly tweak the album while they were on the road so they were touring the u.s and they were touring europe with this album and before it was even released tweaking it and then they were going to take it on tour to japan they had to stop for a little bit because they uh were recording a score for a movie i can't remember which movie it was or some kind of film and then they went to japan after that and were touring the album more And then at that point, they decided, okay, we're going to go into the studio for a little bit, record this album, had to take a break in the studio and then went back to recording it. And um, it's just an interesting kind of historical way to consider conceiving of an album. I mean, I I imagine a lot of musicians come up with new songs when they're on the road because they got to kind of fill in the downtime here and there, but to take a complete album, take it on tour before it is even dropped or released is a really interesting way. Cause I don't, I, I don't think you see that much anymore.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I, it, you, you tend to see it actually after it's like already been released. Like I, I know Coheed, uh, they just did their, um, like 10th anniversary or something like that of, uh, um, burning star four i forget the full name of it but and they played it yeah. in its entirety or whatever and that's when you usually see that this sort of stuff happen where like you'll you'll have the whole album played on like an anniversary or something like that but like it's very rare that you'll have them like debuting all of these songs on stage and then and then ev- eventually getting it onto the record yeah,
1: yeah but exactly
0: I, I yeah I love that little anecdote. Um, that that said, like this is one of the best selling albums of all time. I was l- looking on the the Wikipedia page at like all of the uh, not not only the charts but the certifications for everything and like across like uh, like I don't know it was like twenty something countries <laughs> like it has reached multiple times platinum, uh, it's like 15 times in the U S 14 in Australia, 16 in New Zealand and 15 in the UK. Uh, all of those platinums. And then it has, I I don't see a singular, like there's one silver, but everything else is like gold and platinum, gold and platinum. It's ridiculous. Uh, and according to this 45 million copies have been sold worldwide. That's, fucking crazy yeah i th- i think one of the big things and we'll
1: probably get into that a little bit later i imagine is the symbolism of the album artwork or the uh cover art whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. that that is so that that is one of the most iconic album covers of all time i would yeah. say it's top five i can't say it's number one because obviously the beatles abbey road is definitely up there princess purple rain is definitely up there as well i think yeah but this is definitely one of the most iconic. Like if you've ever been to a hippie house, uh, yeah, they you've had seen a fucking this. <laughs> poster of this album on their wall yeah. at some point.
0: Yeah. I, I, I definitely do love this album artwork. And uh, I was reading about this, like what they wanted to do was make something very simple. Uh, and let like the music, like, kind of like speak for itself. And yes. uh, yeah, I, I love the design of this. Um, it's very, I don't know, simple, but elegant, I guess is the best way to describe it. Right.
1: Yeah. I, the, the one thing I really like about it, obviously, um, you could take a lot of symbolism in different ways and you can kind of look at how, how the, the, the light and the refraction and reflecting of it, um, plays into the name, the dark side of the moon and what that kind of means as, um, as what the band intended for it to mean. But to me, like when I look at this album artwork, I think about kind of how they had this, this clear directive of, we want to push um, the album to be more tangible because a lot of their lyrics were very vague up to their point. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of noodling in terms of the instrumentals. So they had a, they, they, for the first time, they're like, let's be clear. Let's be concise Let's be ourselves, but a more concise version of that. And when you look at the album, like you see the white light going through the prism. And um, you, when you see it fracture into the different colors, that to me is like each topic that mm-hmm. they kind of tackle with their lyrics, um, which ranges in many different ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I. It's. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot to, to be said about just the album artwork itself. Uh, I, I tend to think that it because of how simple it is, like, it's overlooked as, like, something that's, like, speaking to what the album is, but I think you're 100% right. Like, when you take a look at... It's Pink Floyd putting music into a prism and then outcoming, you know, all of the topics that they're talking about. Um, and yeah i I love it. I think that it's fantastic. Um, mm, me too. But yeah uh, let's uh, let's take a quick detour so that we can kind of like I, I guess take a look at kind of what was going on when this album came out uh, musically. Um, so in 1973, or well not in 1973, but 1970 the Beatles broke up um and it was uh very very big deal uh and because of that uh we had you know all of them splitting off to create their own stuff and in 1973 that sort of started coming to a head with paul mccartney uh and wings releasing an album you had um Ringo Starr releasing his debut album and then there were several other things that I saw uh where uh there was like a um a big like benefit concert that uh George Harrison put together and like just a whole bunch of stuff uh going on but I think at at the time that they broke up I think that they were still the Arguably the most influential band in rock and roll uh, at the time, because I think if you take a look at what they did with stuff like *Sgt. Pepper's* and *Revolver* and *Abbey Road*, even it's like what they changed changed in in rock led other people down different paths, right? Like you have like the Who releasing *Fucking Tommy* you know, which is a concept album, and to that point, you really didn't have that sort of thing happening all the time, or uh, I I think, what was it, I think it was Revolver, actually, was the first, the very first album to have all of its lyrics printed on the album sleeve, which was something that they just didn't do, and I, I wanted to bring this up because I think rock music up, until probably the end of like the '60s was very much a pop-inspired thing, uh, and then when the Beatles come along, it starts. It, at the very least towards the end of the '60s starts becoming darker. And you could talk, you know, you could talk about other cultural things like Vietnam or you know, lots of other like cultural influences that caused the music to go darker. But I think rock going into the 70s very much held this sort of like dark uh, undercurrent does that make sense
1: yeah absolutely I uh I, I think it's fair to say that the Beatles are the most influential rock band of all time I, I, I still to this day because yeah. so much so that people who don't like rock music or don't really know about rock music they still know the beatles and yeah I, I you know they're still the one of the biggest rock bands if not one of the biggest bands one one of the biggest musicians of all time and i don't know when if ever that'll change um but yeah you you did start to see this kind of transition and i can't remember what i think it's pet shop is that the name of the beach boys album i can't remember uh pet sounds pet sounds thank you uh you started to see a, a dark turn there which was kind of weird for the beach boys you started to see that and I don't remember what time, what year that album released, so... Uh,
0: I want to say 69. <laughs> but <God>. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. That's <laughs> funny. I
1: told you, man, on 12. I told you that before the show. Oh, holy shit, no.
0: 1966, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, I, fig- I thought it was a little bit earlier, but I wasn't sure. But, I mean, still, that's towards the back end of the 60s. You, you mm-hmm. did start seeing that change. Beach Boys were releasing some darker material. The Beatles were looking at that with like Sergeant Peppers what had mm-hmm. some darker themes in there as well. Um Yeah, it, it started happening and that, that, I don't necessarily think it per se paved the way for bands like Sabbath, but it definitely didn't hurt. You oh know? yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, I think the the whole British invasion really like, I mean, without the Beatles and the British invasion, you probably don't get stuff like Led Zeppelin and, by not don't having get Floyd without the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. And I I think without getting like the Beatles, you don't get Zeppelin or Floyd, and if you don't get those people, you don't get Black Sabbath. And like and you don't really start getting like metal, which I think comes around big I mean we could squabble over this if we really wanted to, but uh, I I don't think mm-hmm. that you start getting metal towards the end of the 70s without Zeppelin or yeah. I,
1: yeah, Zeppelin's a big influencer there. Sabbath was obviously one of the progenitors. Um, I know that in some interviews, Getty Lee has attributed a band called Blue Cheer, which mm-hmm. is not a very well-known band to as one of the precursors to metal as well. So th- there is some debate there. And obviously, um, metalheads are not always known for their ability to agree on things. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, the point, point being that, yes, we definitely did start seeing some darker, heavier material coming out from these bands that were notoriously putting out these happy, feel-good songs or these songs that necessarily didn't didn't always talk about happy things but were musically and sonically arranged in a happier tone with major chords or even the minor chords led to major chords. So, it, yeah, it, we started seeing a definite change around that time
0: yeah yeah uh uh, around 1973 we also still had the you know what we would refer to probably now as like classic rock like that sort of traditional like uh, not even really hard rock but like we we had several major releases from like already established bands uh you know led zeppelin had houses of the holy uh the who had quadrophenia which was actually their second Um, concept album which I I didn't even know that that was a thing like me neither (laughs) uh, and you had the you know the stones putting out goat's head soup and then alongside that you've got other classic rock bands debuting albums like Leonard Skinnerd Aerosmith and Queen all debuted their first albums in 1973 that's crazy
1: crazy yeah
0: but uh and then if you take a look at like where music is going I think disco is really beginning to get into mainstream consciousness here like ABBA didn't really become popular until 1975 but they released their debut album in 1973 and they I mean they are disco right like those guys in the beachies like when you think disco you think those two bands right yeah and
1: it's kind of crazy cuz Bee Gees has a lot of other style music as well. They did a lot of rock songs, but they're, yeah, <laughs> they're not really known for that. Nope.
0: Yeah, it's it, that's weird. Um, but uh, also we, the Hughes Corporation and Carl Douglas both had singles release at the end of '73 that started like they ch- topped the charts by the end of 1974, and that was uh, "Rock the Boat" and "Kung Fu Fighting," and. Yeah, disco really just started like becoming a major player. I think in in popular music at the time.
1: Yeah, disco, funk, and um, older styles of R and B were very, very popular during this era.
0: Yeah. Uh. So I listed some notable albums. Uh, Stop me if you think that you've heard this one before. Um, is a lyric from a song. Okay. <laughs> i was i was gonna let i was gonna let it roll yeah uh but uh yeah if you if you have any others that you wanted to uh like mention um go right ahead but we had uh let's get it on from marvin Gaye, which i think is another one of the like greatest albums of all time it's super good uh how's the holy led zeppelin band on the run paul mccartney and wings um you had bruce springsteen's debut greeting from asbury park Oh, damn, I didn't realize that's uh, yeah
1: when he debuted.
0: Uh Queen released Queen, uh Raw Power uh from Iggy Pop and the Stooges, and Vision from Stevie Wonder, which would go on to win uh four Grammys, uh and is another one of those greatest albums of all time. I guess nineteen seventy three was just a great year for music, right? Sabbath. What what was it? Sabbath
1: dropped Sabbath Bloody Sabbath in 73. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't even
0: for billion whatever dollar reason babies put it from
1: out. Alice Cooper, another huge album. Yeah, I'm I'm not an Alice Cooper fan. I'm not either, but it, it was a uh, yeah, uh, obviously a very big album for him during that time. Um Yeah, I I can't really think of any like other major ones that I particularly care about. I mean, there are some good albums like The Temptations dropped a new album that year.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah.
1: Whoa, Piano
0: Man by Billy Joel. Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. I don't know why I didn't see that. Maybe I just accidentally skipped over it. It's uh,
1: I forgot that that album dropped in 73, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah. Did you. Uh, so I have a uh, weird tangent, probably. Um, Go for it. So. 1973 uh, was the same year that, um, oh, in my mind, the greatest horror movie of all time dropped, um, and that being The Exorcist. Mm. Uh, so uh, did you know that uh, arguably the thing that people like recognize with that uh, soundtrack the most is Tubular Bales? Oh God. What the fuck was that? Did you hear that? <laughs> no. I was like I was like Bales. Um yeah, oh, tub- I I missed that. Yeah, uh, Tubular Bells, which was um what is his name? I gotta find this real quick. Tubular Bells, Mike Oldfield. Okay. So only a snippet of that is actually used in the movie, but Tubular Bells is like this full on like 50 minute prog rock album that's only got like three songs on it and uh it's just a a weird thing that it released in in 1973 um that guy has gone on to recreate that one album roughly once every decade with like different recording um, instruments and stuff like that to, because he can't get the sound right in his head like he hears it in his head and then whatever he makes it doesn't quite always sound the way that he has it in his head and i just think that that's a weird and interesting thing interesting i didn't know that i didn't know anything about that yeah uh only reason i know about that is because of the exorcist <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm gonna break your heart i've never seen that movie i know i know <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I i sometimes feel like i'm the only person like in like all of the all of the discords that i'm in i'm in like five and like i'm talking to like all these people all the time and i'm the only person who likes horror the way that i do well, <sighs> i i have friends who are like that my
1: father really loves the original exorcist and he actually liked the exorcism of Emily rose as well i just horror never really did it for me yeah,
0: i mean and I, I like some
1: horror movies but yeah.
0: I mean, what are you gonna do? The Orphanage. The, I love that movie. Oh, that's a good one. Um Yeah, well but we're not let's, here to talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> we're not we're not here to talk about that. Let's uh <laughs> let's go ahead and we'll talk about the personnel for this album in particular. Uh so obviously you had the core members of Roger Waters, um not Roger Water, <laughs> uh David Gilmore, Nick Mason, and Rich Wright uh Richard Wright. So uh we kind of know Everything that they did, uh, you know, Roger Waters was bass, Gilmore was the guitar. But uh, I didn't know this. Um, Roger Waters actually did some additional like tape effects for this album, yes. and I am not sure what that even means. Um, I can explain that to you. Okay, so it's
1: okay. I don't know the I don't know how to pronounce it because it's French. It's musique concrète. How do okay. you pronounce that in French? But basically it um it was this style of recording where you would take sounds from everyday life and you would integrate them in such a way that it would feel a part of the music but also mm. a little bit distant in some ways so think about the song um money yeah. when you hear the money be- being thrown into the cash register the cash register being shut the little old uh, lever, Pulled for the cash register all of that and that's integrated into the music that's what tape effects means uh if you listen to the album you can hear a bunch of voices Mm -hmm. and that's actually they brought people in um and you can read about this on wikipedia or through many of the interviews that have been done about this album they brought people in and they would interview them and ask questions and they would record all of their answers and their favorite ones or ones that pertain to the subject matter of each song, they would weave them into the music. So a lot of times through this album, you hear just random people talking, and it's from that. It's from those interviews, or it's also from recording sessions between these four. And Roger um, was recording a lot of these, and um, Alan Parsons, I was spacing his name there for a second, he actually has talked since that album that it was kind of a pain in the ass for him to deal with a lot of these, these sounds because uh, the limitations of technology at that time. So he wasn't able to quite get the album to where he ultimately wanted it to, uh, to be quality wise, because he was having to deal with all these tape effects from what Roger Waters was wanting to do and his kind of vision. But even though Alan Parsons kind of had this, this vision of what he wanted to do and the quality that he wanted, I don't think the album would be the same or as good without a lot of those tape effects with a lot of those voices that are in the backgrounds with a lot of the effects, whether it's time and you have the clock going off, whether it's money and you have all that's all that stuff happening. And one thing that I randomly learned as I was um, doing a little bit of research for this episode is the money sound that you're hearing sounds like it's going into the cash register. That's actually Roger's wife used to do pottery and he took some pottery from her workshop and was throwing coins into the pottery. And that's the sound that, uh, is, is, uh, that you hear on the album. That sounds like money being thrown into a cash register.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I definitely had no idea about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, as I was doing research, I didn't know about anything about Musique, Concrete, however you pronounce that in mm-hmm. the French way. And so I actually started to do do a little bit of a deep dive into that as well because it's interesting because you see it a lot. I, I can't say you see it a lot. You see it more with Prague, I think, because they're trying to stand out and do – very unique things, but it's not only localized to Prague. You, I think, you can see it in all forms of music. It's just, um, it's just the way it's implemented is very interesting, and I think that Pink Floyd obviously thrived a lot on doing these kind of out-of-the-box things, which is why this album is so interesting because um, they had they had moments where they were introducing this style of recording, but it is also so polished. So it, it does a good job of teetering on the line of beauty and perfection, never going too far one way or the other.
0: Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. Um, <clears throat> so al- alongside those guys, you had additional musicians. Uh, and I think a lot of those backing vocals uh, that are mentioned in... Um, that you mentioned it as part of tape effects were recorded by uh, several of the the people here as additional musicians, uh, Doris, Troy, Leslie Duncan, Liza strike and Barry St. John. Uh, I think that they uh, did several of those voices as well as they had vocals on um, what, hang on, let me pull back up to the track listing.
1: Yeah. It's the back, it's the back end of the show or not the show. Sorry. The back end of the CD that you hear a lot of the, the backing vocals on this mm-hmm. album, especially. So uh, any co- color you like, Brain yep. Damage, Eclipse, those are three of the really big ones that you hear a lot of those backing vocals on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, obviously, you had the the really... Uh, I What would I say? The really... Um... Vocal solo. Very famous vocal solo. Yeah. If you're... There Talking we go. Claire Torrey. That's exactly where I was going, yeah. Very, very famous. Uh, she was um, a... She was a British singer, uh, but didn't she... She had some, like, huge uh, thing before Dark Side of the Moon, she, right? She was
1: more of a stage worker. Oh, okay. She did more, like, theater and stuff like that. And she was brought in and... Um, again, from what I read, she, when they wanted to bring her in, she initially was like, I can't this week. I'm going to watch another concert. I can't remember which concert it was that she was going to watch, but they brought her in and they paid her 50 pounds, which I believe is the equivalent of 300 or so pounds now, uh, due to inflation, which is like criminally low for how oh, yeah. well this album did. So much so that she ended up filing a lawsuit against Pink Floyd and, um, the record company or the uh, record label, excuse me. And they settled out of court, I believe in 2007. But um, yeah, like the thing was, they knew that they wanted a vocal solo during great gig in the sky and they didn't know what they wanted her to say. So she just went into the studio box or the, the vocal box and just, you know, did what you hear on the album And that's what it ended up becoming. And what's funny about that is, as I told you before, they had taken this album out on tour before they ever recorded it. Instead of her vocal solo, they used to play uh, verses from the Bible during that section.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. And uh, I can't imagine that being what it was because this album is not complete without that vocal solo from... Uh, Claire Tory. It's, yeah. it's integral.
0: Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. This uh it's funny that we're talking about that because like I remember the first time like I listened to this album all the way through by itself. And I always when I, I mean when I was a teenager absolutely hated this song because it Same. I'm it is like what, seven minutes long and it's just this woman just like vocalizing for like four of those minutes just straight through. and I hated it. but now, like I listen to it and I can't not like enjoy this song and her performance in particular. I don't know what has changed in my mind, but like I love it now yeah um, I, you
1: you know what's funny is you mentioning that actually made me realize the first time I heard this album. So the first time I heard this album, I used to work at Coca-cola and it was when about when I was nineteen or twenty. I had downloaded some, I mean, I had uh, legally purchased some Pink Floyd albums and I, I'd gotten this one and I tried putting it on and I remember this song had come on and I was just like, why the fuck does anyone like this band? Like, I really don't get this shit. <laughs> I really fucking don't get it. Um, Listening to, to the album up to that point, I just didn't get it. And then listening to this song, I was like, nope. I just can't do it. Like, I appreciate the skill, can't do it. And, uh, yeah, that was the first time I had heard this album,
0: actually. interesting. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I kind of, I kind of had a similar experience with you with
0: that song, but God, was I wrong. It was I like yeah. such a naive little shit. <laughs> right. Uh, last person I want to talk about with the additional musicians is the absolutely iconic saxophone from Dick Perry that appears on Money and Us and Them. I... I kind of attribute this in particular to my love of saxophone in music. Like I don't think that the, uh, what's the, oh my God, M83. That's the name of the band. I don't think that M83's Midnight City would be quite the same if it didn't have that saxophone in it. Like, and I think that Dick Perry's saxophone stuff specifically on money uh, is attributed to like, why I love the saxophone.
1: Yeah. um, It's kind of interesting how we, we associate certain instruments or certain arrangements or certain chords with the songs that made us fall in love with it. And kind of even how the journey goes with something like that, you know, something like a saxophone, that's where your love started, where your love is at now is probably in a very different place. Oh yeah. (laughs) So, it's interesting how, how music can kind of do that. Obviously it can evoke a certain memory or a certain emotion, but also when you kind of get into the deeper layers, you can hear certain, certain aspects of a song and it whisks you away to a different place. Like um, you're on a very minor tangent there. One of my favorite songs from um a video game this year gave me vibes of a soundtrack from a TV show that I heard a few years ago and I was really in love with. And it's like these two things are not related in the slightest, but it reminded me of that and it kind of gave me a new appreciation for the, the particular sound that each one of them were going for. So I look at it in a completely different way now and that's because somebody else did something completely different with that sound.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I... I agree with that. I, I feel the same exact way about like, like there are certain, like I used to absolutely hate synth music. Like I always thought it was part of like, uh you know, like really like dance music. And then like, I go back and I listen to stuff now, like Daft Punk really helped me to like enjoy synth music. And like, I listen to, uh you know, stuff from like even modern day and it'll be like small little synth bits. And I'll be like, uh, yep. Thank God for Daft Punk. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Daft Punk was really big for for that, I think, for me as well. What's interesting is I we were talking about this a little bit before the show and a little bit during the show. I love Rush a lot. That's one of the bands that my dad brought me up on, and I have a deep appreciation for them. Um, and one of the interesting things is in the 60s and 70s when they were making music, I think it's actually 70s is when they first came out. I'd have to go back maybe late 60s, early 70s. But anyways, it was just straight rock. Mm-hmm. you know. And you had pr- a lot of prog elements in there too. And it, during the 80s, uh, they were like, well, we need to introduce some synth to be modern and current. And it they got vilified for making that choice by a lot of fans mm-hmm. for bringing in synth. So it's kind of funny that you mentioned that because I think a lot of people initially kind of have that reaction you, you think about metal nowadays i think about um one of the more contemporary examples i think is uh, a band called architects from the uk which started out as a very generic metalcore band and in the past few albums they've really changed their sound and their lyrical content because uh, the founding guitarist died of cancer at like 29 years of age oh, shit. and the last album that he was on a large part of that album is actually him writing about coming to terms with his impending death from cancer. Cause he knew he was going to die and you kind of start to start to see after that album. And even during that album, this kind of transition into something a little bit more quote unquote mainstream, but also more sustainable for them in the long road. And this album that they just dropped this year, they have a lot of orchestral and synth elements into their music and a lot of fans have shit on them myself included to some degree (laughs) for them making that drastic change. But also synth is such a versatile instrument and it's such a versatile way of making music that to just completely say synth is selling out that you're completely disregarding all the things that synth does for music and all the, all the, um, uh, the the rain the ranges isn't the right word uh maybe it is I, i'm not sure I'm, I'm spacing but basically you have the low end mid and a high end which is kind of talking about um fuck i'm completely blanking right now B- basically base is the low end you have the treble which is the high end and you have the, the mids all that in between and the synth can kind of fill out some of those elements when something is missing, because you, you obviously have your bass drum and you have your bass guitar and some down guitars in certain genres where you're filling out that low end. But sometimes it can feel like, ah, oh, there's something that's missing here. There's there's some element that could make this feel even more warm. If we can hit that that level in between the high and mid or that between that mid and low and by shitting on synth you're completely discounting that it add. it can sometimes add a very subtle but necessary layer you know and mm-hmm. um I, i'm thankful that i grew up on rush because you know i i grew up on rush a lot like during the power windows era that's what my dad brought me up on a lot and kind of their more experimental stuff so when i hear synth Sometimes my initial reaction is "What the fuck," but then I think about it like, you know what? Got to chill. Let let me give this an honest
0: shot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I uh, completely feel you on that. Um, sorry, I went off on a really big tangent there. I, I apologize. <laughs> I, I went places with that tangent. I apologize. W- went that. places. Um. Well. <clears throat> There's no real easy way to transition out of that, so transition. Yeah, I'm sorry, um, I kind of, I kind of left you in a fucking hard place, but uh, yeah, yeah. My bad. Uh, <laughs> no, you're you're good. Uh, I guess the um, the the next thing to bring up is the production team of Alan Parsons, Chris Thomas, and Peter James. I had my buddy Sean O'Keefe uh, on for the Rush album, and he kind of explained what some of this stuff was, but. I'm going to be honest with you. I still don't know what most of this even is other than like, I know what a mix is. So, uh, I really wanted to point these guys out because of Alan Parsons who went on to create, uh, obviously the Alan Parsons project, which is a, uh, great, great band. Um, and you should check those guys out if you haven't. Um, but do you have anything to say about these guys?
1: Um, um, Like I said before, what I already said about Alan Parsons and how he felt about the um, final product of that. (laughs) Excuse me. One thing that I find really interesting as well is that Alan Parsons had some difficulties with this project because Pink Floyd would be in the studio making a song and they'd record their part and then they'd kind of just leave Alan Parsons to do what he does instead of it being more of a kind of collaborative effort because apparently Roger was a huge fan of Arsenal at the time. So he'd often leave to go watch and support that team, or they'd be watching Monty Python's Flying Circus in the studio. So Alan Parsons is sitting there working his ass off on this album, probably wanting some input or to kind of get a better feel of what they're trying to go for, but they're sitting there kind of dicking off in the studio or some of them are can't be found because they're outside of the studio. So he's talked about that in multiple interviews, which is kind of interesting. Um, one thing, I mean, it's kind of less about the production team and more about where they recorded it that I find really interesting is Abbey, studio, or, uh, Abbey Road Studios is a very obviously super famous uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: studio. I, I mean, that's where a lot of the Beatles albums were recorded. And the uh, Pink Floyd was actually pretty heavily influenced by the Beatles, um, to no one's surprise, as everyone was around that time but they were one of the only other major bands to consistently record albums in that studio besides the Beatles. Mm-hmm. So I found that really interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that.
0: I I didn't know that either. I was reading that earlier and that was the first time that I had even like had that thought enter my head.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I don't know much about Chris Thomas or Peter James. I'm I mean, I'm not that that big of a a fan of Pink Floyd or this album or the whole process of mixing and mastering in general. I'm not that into it, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, but, you know, shout out to Alan Parsons cause he brought out the best in this album. How, however he may feel about it. Obviously I think the numbers and the
0: critical acclaim it has speaks for itself. Yeah. A hundred percent. All right. Um, so, all right. So I guess the next place uh, I, I think is to talk about like the actual contents of the album itself. And we'll, we'll probably start with like the instrumentation of songwriting. Um, really, I think that uh, we were talking earlier about how this album in particular um, was a lot different than what had preceded it and kind of set them down a different path as a band. And I think one of the things for me that really signifies that is that um, this is the first one where they kind of put like actual content and meaning behind the lyrics that they were going for. Um, What What are your thoughts on that? I you know I wouldn't necessarily
1: entirely agree and say that I I think they actually put meaning behind there. I think the meaning was always there. I just think it was really abstract abstract and obfuscated by their, their, their constant instrumentation or their mm. just vague way of conveying the messages that they wanted to say. And so I think it took a concerted effort mainly from Roger, but also the rest of the band members to say like, Hey, let's, we got to evolve here and we got to be direct with what we're trying to say. And I know that, Um, from what I've read from multiple outings of what what they had talked about with this album, that they had kind of wanted to create an album that would quote-unquote piss people off because they were going to be very upfront about a lot of things because a lot of what they were talking about, as we kind of alluded to before, wasn't really discussed in music. Mm -hmm. Mental health being one of the biggest things that a lot of people weren't talking about during that time or depression or loneliness or um, all all the other subjects that they talked about as well. There, there are some other ones and there's some subs, some uh, branches off from some of that stuff. But a lot of the stuff they were talking about on this album wasn't really discussed in music as heavily as I think it, as it was in this album up to this point, a few notable exceptions. So it was it was really interesting to see them a break away from the mass amount of instrument instrumentals that they were doing up until that point and a less direct, not direct, uh, less focused approach. Uh, I I always think about the song Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast from Adam Hart Mother. And that song is such a weird fucking song. I don't know if you've ever heard that song. It's like a Mm -hmm. 15 minute song and it's bizarre. It's really bizarre. And that song came out two, three years before this album did, Mm -hmm. which is crazy to kind of think about that they went through a transformation that quickly. But I think that's one of the things that's notable that they're, they're, instrumental aspect of it felt more linear and focused. It still felt like them. It still felt like they had those moments where they explored, but it was more instead of a blunt weapon, like a club, it was more like a laser focused knife carving out the moments when they could do that. And also Mm -hmm. their lyricism took on a much more direct approach Wanting to talk about certain aspects such as Sid or such as loneliness, you know, some of the things I mentioned earlier
0: Yeah, yeah, there was there was a actually a quote from David Gilmore Given in Rolling Stone that I think really works Specifically for this album going forward uh, But he said I think we all thought and Roger definitely thought that a lot of the lyrics that we had been using were a little too indirect and there was definitely a feeling that the words were going to be very specific and clear and i think from this point going forward it, it very much is that sort of um i think thinking about uh the lyrics in terms of like what they're trying to say yeah and it really it really in this album i mean we're we're
1: not really necessarily there but What it influenced for their music subsequently is really important. I mean, you think about one of the most famous rock lyrics of all time, which is We Don't Need No Education, Mm -hmm. and uh, what that song was talking about. It's kind of crazy to think about just years prior to that. Pink Floyd was just this very abstract band as a whole in all things that it did. And to think when The Wall came out, they were in a very different place, um, as a band. And this album was the precursor to that, them being Mm -hmm. like, okay, let's me be more direct with what we're trying to say
0: and do here. Um, paved the way for something like the wall. Yeah. Yeah. um, with I mean, with that said, I mean we can we can really kind of uh, well one one thing I want to bring up before we get into the lyrics because we're I mean we are talking about that but you you brought up that like uh, earlier a lot of their stuff was kind of like uh, uh, for lack of a better term to to bring it back it, more like instrumental noodling where there wasn't like necessarily like full on like songs composed as opposed to them just sort of like finding it. Um, and I feel like that's a little bit different here. I feel like the songs are more focused and are like more composed, uh, in a weird way. What What are your feelings on that? Because I, I tend to think that a lot of their earlier work before this was very much experimental, psychedelic type stuff, and I, yeah. I feel like this goes in a more like pop. Thing. Does that make sense yeah
1: i i don't I don't know if pop is necessarily right We're more palatable for sure mm. because I think that the music they were making before that was it for a very specific target audience, mm. and I think that they decided, well, we have a lot we want to say, and we want to reach reach a wider audience there's there's more we more ears we need to reach the only way to do that is to make the music more palatable, more understandable understood and more focused. So I like usually when and the reason why I, I push a little bit back on that that pop uh that pop identifier is because a lot of times when you say that a lot of people think, oh well then they just sold out. And that's not what quite what this band was doing here. Even though Ultimately, them making this album made them rich. Yeah, um, very much so. Made them put them in a good position. We'll say that. But the 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 point of this is that they they had messages and they were they were needing to make sure the message connect with a wider group of audience. And the only way to do that is to say like, look, we've done the avant garde stuff here for a while. We've done the exploration of that. Now we can apply that in very specific ways while also still feeling like ourselves, but a more evolved version. And I get what you're saying about the pop thing. I I don't think it's entirely incorrect, but I I would never expect to hear time on, (laughs) on the radio. You know what Mm. I mean? Unless it's a classic rock station and Mm. even then it's going to, I imagine be an abridged radio friendly version of that song because there is still a lot of experimentation
0: on the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, I think I I threw out pop as like a way of saying, um, radio friendly, if that makes sense. Like, I I yeah. do think that a lot of these songs, even even stuff like time and money, that are both like six and seven minutes long, like. They're way more pop friendly or like radio friendly than s- something off of say, uh, I don't know, e- even metal from like uh, two years before this. Like, I think that there's one song on metal that I probably would expect to hear on radio stations, and that's it. And that song, that album's like seven or eight songs long. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Well, the the thing was they didn't really always have a a typical song structure. Mm -hmm. where you have the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, sometimes outro. That is obviously the typical song structure for something you hear on the radio. There are slight variations to that, but for the most part, that's what you will hear. Up until this point, Pink Floyd, they had some songs that fell loosely into that, but a lot of songs didn't quite follow that format. And it wasn't until this album that it started to get a little bit closer to that mm-hmm. i just, even even then though a lot of the songs on this album don't i don't know if there's a single song actually now that i think about it that falls under that category. And Money, I like, Money's an interesting case as well because I don't even know if I... I mean, I've heard it on, like, classic rock stations, but that song is in 7-4, which most songs you hear on the radio are going to be in 4-4 or 8-8, or even 3-4. 3-4 is a very popular time signature as well. Mm -hmm. Um, 3-4 and 6-4 or 6-8, however you want to parse that out. Basically, those are some of the more popular, but 7-4 is a very, very difficult um, time signature to kind of get a hang of. And we can talk about that a little bit more when we talk about money. But uh, yeah, I mean there is some level of this album being a little bit more palatable for a wider audience for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, But uh, sorry for the quick, for that detour, but let's talk about what we were talking about with the lyrics, the themes. Uh, So, I do tend to think of this album as a concept album, even if it's not um, necessarily that, but each one of the songs kind of like rolls into one another and all of the lyrical content kind of, uh, I think speaks to living life, if that makes sense. But also like, within the context of how the album is presented, like with the beginning and and the ending, it's very much set in someone's head. Like, you know, you hear like the different voices and stuff like that. Um, And the album's title alludes to uh, not like some sort of like otherworldly phenomenon, but it was like a phrase in England that actually had to deal with like mental health. Um, I forget exactly what it was, but... um, I don't know
1: it either, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah, so uh, I don't know what what are the big themes of this that that stand out to you.
1: Um, one of my favorite songs on this album is "Us and Them," and that mm. that song really deals a lot with uh, loneliness, and um, a lot of people attribute it to it kind of being the closest thing that Pink Floyd has to a love song besides uh, "Wish You Were Here." Mm -hmm. And what's kind of interesting about the song is that it literally is like talking about the voices inside your head, uh, like you being alone with your brain versus everybody else out there and wishing you can connect with people and not being able to connect with people and you feel like you're at odds with everybody because it's you and your brain versus everybody else. And that's that's such a pervasive theme, I think. Um, for a lot of us is like we have those moments where we feel like it really is us against the world and a lot of times it's illogical you know but that that was one of the big themes um money i think is a pretty self-explanatory one talking about capitalism and how money works and had like the, the evils that come with uh money time is another easy one to understand what they're talking about there they're talking about like the effects of time on humanity and how sometimes we don't, we can't, it's almost impossible for us to live in the moment because we're so caught up in everything else that's happening in the world or happening within ourselves when we should be focused on what we're doing in the moment. Um, brain damage is literally talking about Sid Barrett and the effects that um, both mental health and drug addiction can have on a person. Uh, mm-hmm there are a lot of different themes happening within this album that are fascinating. And it's kind of crazy to think about how this album feels so timeless and like a classic yet they had so many different themes packed into a, such a brilliant album.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I really think that like, I, I think that this album uh, i I mean all of the things that you just talked about really uh speak to like where I think people were at the time um like because this album released i I feel like at the height of like Vietnam right like Vietnam started in the late 60s and then ran all the way through like the I, I feel like the beginning of the 70s I gotta mm. be honest with you I am
1: the last person to ask about history because I did not like history, but, uh, okay. (laughs) Yes, you are right. It, it, uh, Vietnam war ended in 75.
0: Okay. Yeah. But I, I think that like this album is very much a, uh, a look at humanity and all of the things that like living, uh, entails. Like I, one of the, one of the lot lines that stands out a lot to me is, um, at the end of Eclipse, uh, he says, um, or, maybe it's not on Eclipse, but he says, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. And he's really saying, I think he's like, you know, you feel this, I feel this too, sort of thing. I I feel like a lot of the stuff that's going on in this album is very much a look at like, again, humanity. When he says stuff like, breathe breathe in the air like you know he's talking about like hey calm down like we'll get through this together sort of thing i, d- I don't know if there's a lot to grasp on here with the lyrics uh alongside the stuff that you're talking about like greed and consumerism with money or you know us and them you know isolation and and the dichotomies of personal relationships and stuff like that um hmm. yeah yeah, another thing that's really interesting about that that lyric
1: you're specifically talking about, "I'll see you on the dark side of the moon," which was in "Brain Damage," is the the lyric that precedes that, which is, um, "And if the band you're in starts playing different tunes, mm-hmm. I'll see you on the dark side of the moon." I know I don't know about the, the if if that's all specifically connected to to that lyric before it, but I know the lyric before it is in. In large part, reference to Sid. Sid, yeah. Beca- because obviously, uh, when they brought David Gilmore in, Sid was kind of already starting to be somewhere else mentally. Mm-hmm. I guess is a nice way to put that. So, um, yeah, I can't imagine to kind of go through that, like to get some level of like dementia. I mean, it's obviously not dementia because he was young, but just a brain damage to where you are kind of living in this facsimile. Reality, but that reality is real to you, and everyone else around you can see that you are not connected to what everybody else is perceiving to be reality. And music is such like to me, it's like one of the great equalizers. It's one of those things that I don't have to speak your language, we can connect on melody, and um, you. And, and notes and chords and we don't have to speak a language but we mm-hmm. can connect in that way you know like I told you I went and did karaoke or karaoke tonight and my Japanese isn't perfect my Japanese is probably on the lower end of things if I'm completely transparent with myself and a lot of the people there that were Japanese they speak some level of English but most of them aren't fluent but when a song comes on like uh it's my life by bon jovi we can all sit there and jam and have <laughs> have a good time because like you you feel it you know you, you, mm-hmm. you know or uh we sang let it be by the beatles and we were all jamming to that song because of that music to me is one of the great equalizers i i can't quite say i used to say it's a universal language but i can't quite say that anymore because um you know, there, there's accounting for taste and, uh, distribution of music as well. But when I think about, you know, being in a band, being one of the, the creators, the founders, and to be kicked out of my own band, because I'm not even mentally all the way there. I can't imagine that. And I can't imagine probably to some level, the hurt and guilt they felt with having to do that with somebody they really cared about as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. I agree with that. I mean, that's it's
1: a large part of why Sid pops up as a theme in so much of their music. I mean, Shine On You Crazy Diamond.
0: Yeah, exactly. The very next album, right? <laughs> yeah, which is that that song.
1: I mean, seeing Pinky and the Floyd recreate that song live was just everything I wanted it to be and more. So, but anyways, sorry. Uh, Dark no side of the no, moon. Good. that's it that's what we're talking about here yeah
0: um well i mean with that said let's go ahead we'll get to the song by song breakdown before we uh before we end this um so we'll start obviously with speak to me uh and this is the instrumental that starts the album and it ends with a sort of like uh cacophony that's the word yeah of like voices uh and stuff before it leads directly into uh breathe um mm. and ag- again all of these songs kind of like flow in and out of one another so it's hard to talk about them as a song by song breakdown but like um what are your thoughts on speak to me as an opening track
1: well i like that that the album kind of begins where it ends mm-hmm. and vice versa yeah. or it ends where it begins is probably the better way to put that i like that um, you could hear a lot of the, the themes and stuff in the background Yeah, as well. And they're kind of set you up in a lot of ways. Uh, there's a part of the vocal solo from great gig in the sky.
0: Yep. Exactly.
1: In, in this, in the song. Um, which is what leads to the next song. I like that because it, it does such a good job of imitating what it would be like or, presumably what it would be like. I've never experienced it, I guess, to start developing these mental health problems and to kind of start losing my touch with reality. That's where the album starts, is starting to lose touch with reality. And um what's kind of crazy to me, if you think about this, I didn't really think about and I don't know why I didn't realize this until uh doing my research on this album. Each song connects to each other you can play it from front to back and there's there's no stoppage point i i don't know why i never thought about that it just like from the very moment that it starts until the very moment it ends there's no break in the music at all
0: yeah it's very uh mm, i don't know the word i'm searching for but it's definitely something that like I don't think you get, especially in modern music, I don't think you get a lot of albums that are uh, made this way, where everything, like, it is all one connection. I feel like, especially in modern music, there's a lot of stuff that's very much like, okay, this is going to be a single. Okay, this is, like, it's more like songcraft as opposed to, like, writing an entire album, if yeah. that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, like, I think that's why I, I tend to cling to or I tend to, uh, I won't say cling, I tend to gravitate towards prog music or jazz fusion is Mm. because they still do a lot of that stuff where it's not too avant-garde, but they're willing to kind of explore beyond the typical song structure and the typical way of doing an album and whatnot. Obviously, it doesn't garner them a whole ton of money and a whole ton of fame, whatever their particular thing that they're trying to achieve is but i like that there's a lot more variety in those styles or genres of music to where this stuff is kind of explored i think about some of my favorite prog albums over the years where they've done like one song that transitions into another song but never a full album like this that i can think of yeah off the top of my head but speak to me really just sets the tone and it's, it's integral. I mean, like, you could say that about each and every one of the songs, so it's kind of generic, but because <laughs> it sets the tone so well that if if you just went into, like, Breathe, which is the next song we're going to be talking about, none of the other songs would have the amount of impact that they do without Speak to Me. Yeah, because I 100% agree. It sets the
0: tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, you, you brought it up, but, like, there's the... Uh... Um, all of the stuff that is featured on all the other tracks. Like you've got the, the like maniac sort of laughing and that comes back in brain damage. You've got like the heartbeat that kind of like starts the album. And I, I feel like it's heard in a couple of other, other tracks, but it's featured very prominently at the end of eclipse. And it, like you said, kind of brings it back around or like, I think, I think you hear some of the, the cash register noises in, the song like it really just touches on like what you're going to experience and i think without without lyrically saying so reaches back into that theme of like humanity like these are the songs of humanity or like these are the sounds of humanity type thing i don't know yeah
1: well no no, you're right and that's why uh roger waters implemented so much of his tape recordings in that styles because they wanted to capture different aspects of the human experience and part of that is capturing those sounds that you hear
0: Mm, yeah um so like we were saying uh speak to me directly goes right into breathe um how do you feel about this song uh because i think i have some things to say well you
1: know what i'll let you go first I'll let okay. you go first.
0: I mean, you I've been reflecting first this whole time.
1: I'll let you go first. <laughs> okay. No, no, not like in a negative way. It's just like, I, I want you to, you know, like share your thoughts first from time to time as well. Cause then I, I, I think that a lot of times you're kind of reflecting off of what I'm saying.
0: Mm, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, so this, I think is one of the first songs that I ever heard off of this album for whatever reason. And, I just love this song so very, very much. I don't know what it is about it in particular that like I sit there and think to myself like, oh, this is a great track. But I love how the guitar when it like so the song starts with a continuation from Speak to Me. And it's sort of that like I don't want to say soft piano, but like it's like that. Uh, I How do you how do I want to describe it? But it's, it's almost like you have like the, the uh, kind of like gunshots almost. And then like the piano that comes in. And then the guitar just like pushes all of that away. And it really feels like, I mean, obviously it's it, the lyrics are, you know, breathe, breathe in the air. But like it's this cacophony of noise that just kind of gets brushed away by like this like guitar that really is like, Mellow and like the beat in the background with, uh, you know, Rogers or Waters on the, um, on the bass mixed in with like the drums. And the drums are kind of like soft, like everything's just kind of soft after this noise that just kind of comes out of nowhere. And it really, I think, kind of sets the tone for not. Not the rest of the album, but it kind of like sets the tone for what the song is trying to say, which is like, I think, you know, take a second to like live life, (laughs) if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, I I think you could even make the case. I don't know if this is intentional or not by Pink Floyd. I'm sure it was. Um, But I I think another thing that's kind of interesting to analyze is Speak to Me kind of feels like the beginning of their career, where it's eclectic, it's all over the place. And when... Mm -hmm. Like you're saying, when that's all kind of brushed away with uh, David Gilmour's playing of the guitar and uh, the other bandmates coming in with that simple groove and what they're playing at the very beginning, it's very focused and it's very easy to absorb what's happening. And I I, I think you could say that's kind of a met- metaphor for what the album in general was going to become off of earlier what their career was and what the path that led them up to this point but obviously, I don't think that's the main point of the first two songs, but I think the case could be made there, and I'm sure there was some intent there to do that. But Breathe is, yeah, exactly what you're saying. It's a song, it's a song about taking chances, taking risks, and just enjoying your life and not always playing it safe because playing it safe doesn't always get you to where you want to be. And even, even if it's like you feel like you want to go to that particular path and you want to walk that path that isn't necessarily the path that is the best path for you to walk the one you see that's in front of you that you think is the safest and the best isn't always the best for you and um i I mean we could say a bunch of you know couch philosophy things like the uh the the path less traveled is you know or (laughs) sometimes you got to walk through mud you know, shit like that, but a lot of that is true. I mean, a lot of cliches are founded in some level of truth, and I think that the song, in its very simple and elegant way, tells the listener that without playing with a lot of those cliches either. I think a lot of people, and a lot of modern music plays with those cliches and those idioms a lot, but Pink Floyd managed to in this song, kind of convey what has been conveyed to us many times through many media forms, without saying too much, without um, evoking or emoting too much.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really love this song. Um, I do too. But uh, this this song kind of transitions directly into "On the Run," which. Uh, you know, I kind of think is almost a little on the nose, <laughs> but like, because you hear like the footsteps and stuff like that, like all kind of like throughout the song, but like it very much does, I think a hundred percent nail what the song feels like, like with the way that the, the drums are just kind of like softly, but like really like um, fastly, like, Ticking away, like it feels very propulsive. Um, yeah, it, it, it very much, um,
1: without being too reliant on those ambient sounds and to too reliant on the synth, though the synth is, plays a major part in this. Playing that double time on the hi hat, the the thirty second notes, the chikichik. I can't do it that quickly. With it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that was played on my fat stomach, but, um, (laughs) no, uh, like that really is, is a level or is a, a feeling of propulsion, like you are moving through and yes, it is a little on the nose, but, um, I think that the, the, the last little bit of vocals that are played at the end are kind of what, what, what's important is that you're, if you're, uh, which is kind of interesting when you kind of consider the last song, but if you are just solely living for the moment all the time, not worrying about tomorrow, tomorrow is going to eventually catch up to you. And, you know, the consequences of today's actions will bleed into tomorrow. And uh, you will have to address those whether you want to or not. And I think that is kind of a an indirect look at Sid and his life in a lot of ways as well, because he was doing a lot of drugs and he wasn't really thinking about his long-term health, both physically and mentally. And it eventually caught up with him.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also like this song being paired with, uh, breathe, which kind of is a very, uh, soft and slow song. And then it's immediately followed up by this, song that is very much like propulsing you forward and like the idea of like take your time live life to like your own specifications or whatever and then on the run is like no but you gotta go you gotta you gotta move come on like get going sort of thing uh yeah it's tugging you back and forth yeah and then it immediately launches into the next song which is time which is all about i I mean time right like it's all about like how we as humans never have enough time and like how one should, uh, for lack of a better term, spend their time. Um, I don't know uh, what I'll go ahead and say this. I think time is my favorite song on the entire album. Ooh. Um, uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on the song? I really like the, that, um, that it
1: talks a lot about different aspects of time. You know, it isn't just saying don't waste your time. It isn't just saying live in the moment. It's talking about all the aspects of it. One of my favorite lyrics in the song is uh, kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown, waiting for someone or something to Mm -hmm. show you the way. Because uh, I came from a really small town in Montana and I should say a small city, not a town, because there are some there are some really podunk towns in, in Montana, like population a hundred. But my my town wasn't that quite that small. But um, I you know I look at a lot of the people who kind of just never left and like I, I have them on social media and they go out and still get fucked up in their thirties and they just talk about football all the time and shit like that. And there's not necessarily anything wrong. I'm not saying I'm not looking down at them or anything like that, but I do look at them and I'm like, I wonder it. I wonder if they're just kind of waiting around for life to present themselves with a better opportunity. If they're waiting for someone to kind of come along and, um, you know, kind of show them the way. But when you, when you live that lifestyle, suddenly, as the song alludes to, ten years later, you you think you got all the time in the world. Life is long, and suddenly ten years have flown by, and you're like, "What the fuck did I just do with mm-hmm. those past ten years?" And um, I like that the song really addresses that in a in a fun way too, because that guitar that guitar lick is really fun, and um, when it kicks into the part where it's less guitar heavy and it's more synth heavy and they got the backing vocals kind of going,
0: Ooh.
1: I can't do it. Obviously. Um, I can't sing, but they have that in the background. It kind of feels a little bit more, um, abstract and ethereal. And it's kind of like lifting you up and you're floating along the clouds for a few seconds during that part. And then you're dropped back down and the guitar riff comes back in. Uh, it it complements so well. Um, Kind of like that guitar is playing and it's happy and it's kind of go lucky and it's kind of like what you're thinking about in life when you're not really worried too much about the time you have on this earth and then that 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 floating moment happens and that's like kind of your out of body experience of realizing well shit I really don't have as much time as I think I do and it's kind of like the, that that conscious moment of uh thinking about time in a different way and I love the fact that gilmore does like the verses that the 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 kind of bounce here happy-go-lucky moments and then roger water's voice is the you having the out-of-body experience
0: mm-hmm.
1: realizing what's actually going on
0: yeah and, and i think uh i think it's actually a, a nice um not not juxtaposition but like a nice uh, I guess, compliment to what you're saying with like the line. And then one day you find 10 years of got behind you. No one told you when to run. You miss the starting gun. Like that lyric just, it, uh, it's sublime. I, I love the like realization that like, there isn't necessarily a uh, starting point. Like, and, and like when you mix that with like the, uh, the way that like, um, the Gilmore parts are supposed to be like fast and like, like, Oh, not fast, but like more like, um, careless, I guess is the way to think about it. And then like you get to what you were saying with like Rogers and he's talking about like how there is no definitive time and stuff like that. I don't know. It's just, I love this song. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's
1: not enough praise that could possibly be heaped onto the imagery that is painted in, in the lyrics on this album on, as a whole, but uh, there's a lot of really good imagery in the song. And it's like, you can pick apart different lyrics and you're like, I know exactly what he's trying to say. I can picture in my mind exactly what he's trying to say. And it's because the words are so well crafted and meticulously picked. Mm-hmm. And it's, it can be simple and it can still have a strong message. And that's
0: exactly what the song is. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I want to mention two other things about the song. Uh, first, uh, the guitar solo. Um, I think this might be my favorite guitar solo of all time. I just adore. Wow. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's either this or. Um, I know this is gonna fucking bother people, but I love the guitar solo at the end of Stairway to Heaven. I, I think it's fantastic. I um, mean
1: it. People only have a problem with it because that song is just fucking been overplayed, but it, it yeah. is a great solo.
0: Um, yeah, I, I love this guitar solo. I think it's fucking fantastic. But uh, the other thing I want to mention is that the song ends with a sort of reprise of Breathe, and I I don't know what exactly that is like supposed to mean, but I, I do love that it returns back to – that song um do you have any thoughts on that you know like
1: i i i thought about i've always thought about it from the simple fact of like ah dumb caveman brain loves when awesome musicians go back to this i love this (laughs) i like that's kind of like the my level of analysis but now that you mentioned it um maybe it represents the maybe I'm completely wrong about this, the duality of time, you know, where mm-hmm. sometimes there are moments where it's like, we should live in the moment. We should just enjoy those free moments that we have to just be there. But at the same time, don't live only as that, because then the 10 years do pass you by pass you by rather. So maybe it's just kind of showing the duality and the struggle of humanity as a whole in terms of the concept of time where it's like there are times where we feel like oh fuck I'm not doing enough I'm just kind of fucking just letting life pass me by and I'm not focused enough on this I'm not focused enough on that and then you get to that point you're like fuck man I just need to breathe and relax and just take some time to myself and then suddenly days have gone by where you've done nothing and it's just this kind of like cyclical nature and you're constantly going back and forth between i'm not doing enough i'm doing too much and that's the struggle at the time yeah maybe i don't know uh, that's just the way i interpret it uh, yeah. <laughs> i mean it's definitely possible
0: different. yeah um well uh this uh once again transitions into the next song which is the great gig in the sky uh i feel like that is a reference to like heaven or some sort of afterlife type thing. I could be wrong, but, um, I could totally see that with, uh, the vocals almost being like a, um, almost church esque, like church hymn esque. And then you've got the organ in the background that is very much like, I feel like, you know, you hear organs at churches and stuff. um, I don't have much to say because I, I don't think that there's much to say in terms of like lyrical content. Uh, but I, I do really fucking love this song. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts?
1: Too. Well, there, there are some, some of those backing, like those, those kind of obfuscated vocals in the background. And I actually didn't know this until very recently. The, the lyrics read, and I am not frightened of dying. Anytime will do. I don't mind. Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it. You've got to go sometime. If you can hear this whispering, you are dying. <laughs> Those
0: are the shit.
1: <laughs> Maybe that's why I've never heard them because I'm not dying yet. But no, um I think it's it's kind of a a a a closing of the door of what the previous tracks have been talking about breathe on the run in time where it's kind of like You're at the end of your time and you're not going with you're not going with a a whimper. You're going out with a bang. You're you're you've suddenly realized that time has just passed you by. You've let it pass you by and the anguish you feel about dealing with time your whole life and never being able to overcome it or to become its master even for one day it always was your master and like i feel like there are a lot of raw primal instinctual emotions that are brought out with that performance and that's what's so beautiful the fact that there are almost no lyrics to the song is that it to me that's what it represents and it can represent many different things for each person but it's kind of that that to me it's the anguish as as you're about to go and you're wrestling with the fact of like, did I do enough in my life? Did I do the right things? Do I have time to change that? No, I don't. And you're kind of wrestling with those things at the end of your life and thinking about, well, if I had just a few more years, maybe I could have done something a little bit differently. Or if I had the knowledge um, that I had have now 50, 60, 70 years ago, I could have done things a little bit differently. And that's kind of like the anguish that is brought out from her performance during this song.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, I don't think there's much more to say. So uh, (laughs) let's let's move to the next song, which (laughs) is uh, possibly my second favorite song (laughs) on the album. Uh, And that's Money. Um, Boy. I fucking love this song i i i say that but i i mean i love every one of these songs but like yeah i love how simple the baseline is or presumably simple the baseline is and how it just kind of sets the whole tone for what the song is uh and then the did the guitars with the reverb i just like uh, there's so much to uh, to say about the song. You mentioned earlier that it's in seven four time signature. Uh, so what? I don't know. Uh, tell me about that. <laughs> so, the the
1: thing is like, you're mentioning the 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 bass line, which is very iconic and very, mm-hmm. am- it's a such a good bass line. Do 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 do, and it's like, it's this feeling of. <clears throat> When you have a good bass line and you're walking while listening to it, you feel like a badass. You mm-hmm. you have nothing to do with that song. You didn't write it. You didn't conceive of the idea. But when you hear a really good bass line when you're walking, you feel like a badass. And a, a large first part, the big first part of the song is the conceit that you, you may like painting the picture that you, the general you, not... Specifically, you, the listener, make all this money and you have all these things. You can get first class on a, on an airplane. You can buy all these expensive things. So that baseline is kind of trying to evoke that feeling of being a badass. But the thing with the seven four is it's it, the beat doesn't end on a typical measure that you think so it's like one two three four one two three four and that's something I can tap my foot too easy that's something I can bob my head to as I'm listening to this four four it's something I'm very comfortable with but when I take it into one two three four five six seven one it's like it it's like a jolt Mm -hmm. right it's like oh shit wait oh wait oh wait and it's like you're constantly being jerked trying to find this and it's not quite as badass as you think it is because four fours that there's a lot of groove there there's a lot of pocket there as you would say as a drummer or a bass player where i could just really get thick and deep into that groove and lay down this track that would make me feel even more badass and think of something like funk where it's like a, a boots cats, yeah and it's like you really getting into the pocket there and it's just laying this nice thick groove but it's almost impossible not impossible but it's almost impossible to make this groove that just you feel when you're in seven four mm. and that is a stark contrast to that bass line and eventually this the saxophone which kind of takes it out of the realm of that later on in the song but we'll get to that a little bit later the whole the whole point is you're supposed to feel like a badass at the beginning of the song but something feels off about feeling like a badass and when you get to the lyrics when you've that um david gilmore is singing about how yeah it's great you have money you're buying all these things but um eventually you get to the point where you're like this is this is all tongue in cheek which i think it's clear from the delivery of his vocals pretty early on. But the lyric that really hits um, that I love is money. It's a hit. Don't give me that good do goody good bullshit. It's the <laughs> only time in the song that or in the album that I, I can remember David Gilmore saying any kind of curse word. There are other curse words in the album. Um, oh, largely in those kind of uh, those backing vocals that they recorded from other people, but this that's the only line that i can remember in the entire album where he curses. And mm-hmm. so he's got the he's laying it on thick saying like yeah, cool you got money, that doesn't mean fucking anything to anybody. Who gives a shit? You know? And that that message, the delivery of the vocals, the lyrics and the time signature all lend itself to that. This song is really on the nose in a lot of ways if you think mm-hmm. about it but because of the time signature, it makes it a little bit more abstract, which is very much Pink Floyd's, uh, calling card, what they do. Seven, four is such a cool time signature. Five, four and seven, four are really difficult for a lot of people to wrap their minds around. And it's a, it's a difficult one to keep time, um, keep track of when you're counting it. Like, um, especially if you are not well versed in that in the percussive or the uh just the rhythm section as a whole but there's so much you can do with it especially because people don't expect it so Mm -hmm. that's to me one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite songs uh i ask me on any given day it's between money or us and them but i really like even though it's really on the nose uh lyrically a lot of the other things they are doing are incredible about the song
0: yeah I I hundred percent agree. I one thing that I particularly latch on in this song, I I really love the guitars in this song. Like just, I I don't know what it is about it in particular, but I just I adore the guitars in this song.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really great. It, it like to me again, probably reading in my own way. It's like, yeah, the money is great, and you like those first few notes that hit. Or not the first few notes, like the the note that hits in the the first few echoes of the reverb, you feel like a badass, and then it eventually goes away, and that's what money does. It eventually yeah. goes away, and like yeah, that's corny. Yeah, it's on the nose, but that's what the song is. It's on the nose, and that's okay. But yeah. I, I I really love the sax solo actually because it's so yes. fucking just it's, it's frenetic. So and it's it's it makes you uncomfortable, especially when he trills. He does a like the little trill in there. I love that because it mm-hmm. makes you uncomfortable. It makes you feel like that's when it really feels uneasy in the song. And I love that. It just again, it's on the nose, but it it's done so well that it's okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Perfect, perfect way to sum that up. Um, so let's move on to us and them, uh, which again, I think is an incredible song. I love this song. (laughs) Um, but it, it just kind of, uh, comes directly in from money. And I think it's kind of, uh, I I don't want to say prescient, but I think it, it kind of is, uh, like a nice way to look because I, all right it's a nice way to kind of look at the two together as like a, almost like a singular piece, because this really does talk a lot about, I think war and the senselessness of war. Um, and when you put that with the, uh, like the aspect of money. And then we think about like in modern day, we talk about how like the, not the prison industrial complex, the, what what am I thinking of? It's the something industrial complex. Oh my gosh, uh, military? Mi- military industrial complex. Lord in heaven, uh oh, it's too early. Um, but yeah, and and how they go hand in hand. I I like that in particular, uh, like as a sort of like speaking point. But um, yeah, well, what do you think about us in them?
1: I love this song so much. Um, I think about the song a lot, less because of the lyrics, but I do love the lyrics in the song as well. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, it has two meanings. It has it's the meaning of war, which is um, pretty easy to surmise from the lyrics. I also, like I was talking about earlier, has a feeling of like dealing with loneliness because. Mm-hmm. I think you could apply all these lyrics to kind of like the wars and battles you fight inside your head, um, mm-hmm. and the, the constant self-doubt that you have as well. I think very it can equally be just as prescient in that regard as well. I I love that we go from money, which is this very—it's the most aggressive song on the album. Oh yeah. In, in so many ways, to the most somber and just... I don't want to say moody because that's not quite the word I'm looking for. I think just somber. It's the most somber song on the record. And it's interesting because the, the what it's talking about, you could just as well have made that the most bombastic, heavy, Aggressive song on the album because it's talking about war, but it to me has this like effect of You're almost watching a montage of war Or mm-hmm. you're watching a montage of someone dealing with their mental health struggles and it's kind of like That that effect that movies do. I don't know what it's called. Maybe you know this where it makes it seem as if like you're here you're listening, but you're not really hearing and comprehending what's being said is yeah. there a spe- specific uh, I, term for the effect?
0: I know what you're talking about but like I wouldn't know what to call it. Um, but yeah. you're talking about like like in the Saving Private Ryan sequence where like the sound kind of cuts out and you can hear everything going on but it's like muffled? Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: And a lot more movies are actually doing that more recently uh, playing around with that those kind of effects. But yes, I like that the the instruments kind of seem far away yeah they're 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 well into the mix and they're they're putting the mix very well, but it also feels like they're kind of far away and you're just you're kind of surveying the landscape as bombs are going off and troops are just dropping and their guts and blood are spilling out from their abdomen. And also, you're also watching someone kind of slowly descend into madness from their mental health struggles and you're just kind of seeing different scenes it's kind of like a very poorly put together film back in the day when they used to use tape and they splice scenes together Mm -hmm. and you're kind of just viewing from left to right, very slowly someone slowly just descend into their mental health struggles. And to me, that's what the song is. And it's, it's again, because of the way the engine, the, the production is on this, the mixing and the mastering, which speaks to, um, uh, fucking
0: Alan Sorry, Parsons I His
1: name. Uh, yes. Thank you. Alan Parsons, just the, the great job he did on, on this. And yeah, it, it's such a freaking gorgeous song. I love
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't say much more myself. Uh, the only thing I want to point out is again, the saxophone. I love the saxophone in this song. Hmm. Um, super, super good. This, this one actually feels way more jazzy, uh, the saxophone does, than in Money. And, yeah. and in that way, I sometimes think that this solo is better. Um, but I don't know. They're both really great. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean,
1: I, I definitely like that solo better better i think on average but they're going for very different things yeah that goes without saying i don't think you're necessarily supposed to like (laughs) or feel great about the sax solo in money (laughs) but us and them it's very lamentous in the Mm -hmm. way it's played and it's it 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 gives you a sense of hope
0: Mm -hmm. where there is none to be found yeah agreed um, all right, so this transitions into any color you like, which I believe is another instrumental, right? Yes, um I don't have a whole lot to say about this. uh I think it's maybe my least favorite song on the album um mm. it's not a bad song uh, I I really like the song, but it's probably my my least favorite um what are your thoughts on it? It's um. It's an interesting track
1: because I think this is kind of like them not quite fully shedding their past. Mm -hmm. This is one of the, this is a track that very much is something that they would have done years prior, where it's very abstract and it's open to interpretation. What they're trying to convey is up to you, but you get a hint from the title, any color you like which is Mm -hmm. basically saying live your life the way you want it, want to, because I mean, there's nothing else you can do. And, but it's also a juxtaposition to uh, Roger Waters belief that choice and uh, free will is an illusion as well. So um, that, which this song I think is a direct correlation for obvious reasons to the album artwork.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, so, I, I love the synthesizers in this song. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of tend to, uh, like if there is one song, I, I don't skip any songs on this, on this album, but like, if there was a song I was going to skip, I think it would be this one. Um, I, I don't know. Um, there's a lot to like about this song, but there's, I feel like there's less to latch onto, here than the rest of the album. I
1: I agree with you, but then I think about brain damage and the way that starts. And Mm. I would feel like I'm cutting brain damage short by not listening to any color you like. Yeah. Yeah. I a
0: hundred percent agree with that.
1: Like I, I love brain damage a lot. That's a great song and I love the way it comes in, but it also feels abrupt without you having listened to any color you like beforehand, or at least that's how I feel.
0: Oh no, I a hundred percent agree with you. This, that I think the reason that I, I don't like this one as much as I like, uh, like almost all of the other songs is I really do feel like this is a sort of transitional track between us and them and brain damage. Um, and again, like I, I feel like I need to say this. I don't think that the song is bad. I really enjoy the song, but it, almost feels like filler or, or like I said, like a, like a transitional track. Like it, Hmm. I don't want to say it doesn't serve a purpose cause it definitely does, but it's, I, I it's the one that I think has the least meaning compared to everything else. Yeah.
1: I could see that. And like, it's different from something like shine on your crazy diamond where there's a, there's a lot of, um, like synth at the beginning and then there's a lot of guitar mm-hmm. David Gilmore to me and I know a lot of people feel different ways David Gilmore's guitar playing was just its own voice as well yes and any color you like if it had more def- defined versions of that I think that it would uh, like wouldn't be considered probably one of the weaker tracks on the album and the thing is I think that for some people, this is probably the best track on the album because it allows for the most breathing room. You know, I'm sure there are some people out there that feel that way. Um, But it's also to note that it's, it's also good to note rather that this song very much feels like them kind of getting the lat, like wringing out the, the towel for the last bits of who they were Mm -hmm. in some ways.
0: No, I, I feel that. And especially when you consider that it goes directly into brain damage, which is like about Sid Barrett and his deteriorating mental health and how Sid Barrett was their driving force for a long while. Um, Yeah, I, to- I totally feel that. Um, yeah. But, uh, I mean, let's talk about brain damage then. Uh, I this was one of the songs that uh when I was listening to it as a teenager that I really latched on to and not because of the lyrical content but I love the music in the background of everything that's being sung um I don't know what that says about me uh but I love it it's it's very similar to kind of like how
1: you're describing the the great gig in the sky where it feels like there's this kind of this organ in the background when the the song first starts and you think about where the song ends up and it has the big chorus at the end um and they're all singing we'll see you on the dark side of the moon and mm-hmm. it's just like it it culminates like it's weird because the album isn't all connected so kind of the album is culminating but it also kind of isn't in some ways yeah lyrically it's not culminating but I think it's impressive that I'm trying to think uh, just to make sure I don't speak out of turn on this. I think it's the song that goes the most places to Mm -hmm. be honest with you um, from start to finish. It's one of the ones that go to the to all these different areas. And I think that speaks to the care that they were probably trying to take as they were addressing the issue of Sid Barrett that they put so much time and effort into that song and with the most transit transitory pieces of the song that it shows I think how a how much Sid Barrett meant to them but also kind of the different the different perspectives and emotions felt during that situation. You know, they, it's, it's a very simple beginning where you're kind of looking at it from Sid's point of view that like the lunatic is in the grass. The lunatic is in the hall. Like, is that in my mind or am I the lunatic?
0: Yeah. But then Mm -hmm.
1: when you start coming in at the end, it's like everybody else, um, looking at Sid and maybe that, that had Sid not kind of fallen into his addiction, which is not completely his fault as we've now learned by mental health, that maybe playing music with his friends and leaning on his friends would have kind of been his salvation, which is why the music is arranged in that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, Uh, also there's the the line at the end of the second verse where he says there's someone in my head but it's not me could totally be like when you think about like uh when you're doing drugs or you're drinking alcohol or whatever how that makes you a completely different person i there's a lot to take in about this song
1: absolutely there's a um there's a there's a song by Jimmy Eat World. I'm trying to make sure that I I get... Okay, it's called Drugs Are Me. And there's a line in the song that says, I wish that you could see the face in front of me. Um, you're sorry, you swear it, you're done, but I can't tell you from the drugs. And it's kind of interesting because that's obviously a different aspect of that. But... Mm-hmm. I like the fact that this is, from Sid's point of view, looking inward at himself. And other songs obviously look at the outward looking outward. Like that Jimmy Eat World lyric is like, everybody can recognize you're not yourself when you're in the midst of a serious drug addiction. But sometimes because of the mental health struggles, there's nothing that you can do because that's your only temporary salvation and that's mm-hmm. easier to live with than struggling for the rest of your life trying to find pockets of salvation and sometimes you as, as bystanders you got to realize that like yeah I, I wish I could have done more but there's only so much I not being a mental health professional can do in that situation and I'm sure that the song was in some ways of them kind of coming to terms with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's also another, like, really great, because this, like, all, all of the other songs kind of transitioned into, into one another, but, like, this one and Eclipse are, like, sandwiched together where they could potentially be one song. Yeah. Um, and I, I love that in here, you know, he says stuff like, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon that really kind of, I think like says like, I'm there with you. And then all of the lyrics in eclipse are, are saying things like, you know uh, all that you are and um, and like all that we are and stuff like that. And it really, I think drives home the idea that like, um, like I understand you. You understand me. We are one in the same. We're all human beings type thing and bringing it back home to that theme of, of, you know, humanity. Um, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. I think
1: the other part is like, I think that is the song is also on this album, the final closure for the sit situation as well, because um, yeah, I'm not saying you're wrong. Just, just so we're clear on that. Mm -hmm. To me, the way I interpret it is uh, as listing all these things that presumably Sid has done in his life. All the things that you've bought, all the things that you've stolen, all the things that you've said, all the things that you've given, all the things that you wish you could have said, all the things that you, you you know, that you bled for all these things. They're not going to matter anymore because they've already happened and you're too far gone. And uh, any hope any salvation that you could have taken in the past is gone because the sun has been eclipsed by the moon. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's always how I've interpreted the song. And I think you're right that as well, that there could be a case made of like, there's a, there's a connectivity there and all the things that we've done in the past provide us with happiness and uh, like those good memories and whatnot, but also um, when the dark times come, when the sun is eclipsed by the moon like you like me none of that will ever matter because Mm -hmm. we will all have to deal with our own internal struggles and our inner demons and that's also something that connects us
0: Mm -hmm. i i also think that like um i i think you know, we talk about speak to me and how it kind of opens up with the heart beating. You've got a clip that also ends with the heart beating and then kind of slowly fading out. And this whole thing is almost like a voyage through life. And like your heart starts beating and then the album ends with it beating and slowly like tracking off. I don't know. I I think it's like, I I mean, it, it again leads to the whole, what I think the album is about, which is like a meditation on life.
1: Um, yeah, it's a big reflection on life, to say the least, and it's it addresses a lot of interesting and difficult topics that I think we've seen talked about a lot more in modern day media. But at this time, I don't think from from at least my re- recollection and understanding, it was done at the level that Pink Floyd had done it up until this point.
0: Mm, yeah. Um. Well, uh, I think really that uh is the end of the conversation so let's i guess unless you have anything else to say um not anything other than i've already said i love
1: this album front to back i think it is a an essential listen to anybody who is a fan of music not just rock music or metal music but music in general it is such a timeless album it is an album that historically has influenced so many different genres and
0: so many different
1: um aspects of music that it is a must listen
0: yeah i i wholeheartedly agree um well i was i was going to say we should get into our final thoughts and rating but you beat me to it um So, uh, yeah, well, uh, with, a with a rating, I, I like to do fun stuff. So, uh, how many out of 10 prisms would you give this? I'd give it
1: 9.5 prisms because I think that the album is damn near flawless. I think that, you know, we talked about any color you like for me personally. I think that is a, um, like you said, I think that's probably the weakest track on the album. And I think that it, it was kind of them putting the last vestiges of their past into a song form one final time. Mm. And I think that they probably could have done a little bit more with that track, but that's like the only gripe that I really have about the album. Other than that, I mean this album is damn near perfect. Yeah. So I I'm uh, fine with 9.5 prisms.
0: Okay. Uh well with that said, um how about your rating? I so I think that this is one of the greatest albums of all time. Uh I would personally rank it somewhere in the top 5 if not number 1. Um oh, wow. I I adore this album, like from front to back. And uh, I, spoiler alert, it gets a perfect 10 out of 10 prisms for me. Um, <laughs> I I genuinely, even with, you know, I said, you know, some things about any color you like. I don't think that if that song weren't on this album, that it would get high. Uh, what's a way to phrase this? I think that if that song were not on this album, I think that the album would be lesser for it. Like even yeah. though it's a, a a track that I don't particularly like, I wouldn't pull out as one of the ones that like I love or whatever. It still is integral to the whole part, and I think that like from from start to finish, this album is is perfection. I I I I listen to this, and when I listen to it, I listen to it front to back. There there isn't a a time where I'm sitting and thinking to myself, all right, I'm just going to listen to time. It's okay, I'm going to listen to dark side of the moon. Uh, and I think that this album has infinitely influenced my taste on music. Uh, I, I think that if I had never listened to this album as a teenager, I don't know that I would like a lot of the music that I do like. Uh, like I, I love Coheed and Cambria. And I, I think that without Pink Floyd and without Rush, Coheed and Cambria probably don't exist. um, I don't know. I, I think that dark side of the moon is one of the most influential albums of all time. And I think it's one of the best. Uh, it's perfect. 10 out of 10 for me.
1: Yeah. I can't disagree with anything you're saying. Um, I do think it's, yeah, I, I I don't know where, what my top ranked albums of all time is, but it's definitely high up there for sure. It's a f- fantastic album.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I have taken up a bunch of your time. <laughs> <laughs> don't so, worry about it, I, uh,
1: this, this ended up being a lot more fun. Not that I didn't think it was going to be fun, but it ended up being even more fun than I thought it would be. So perfectly okay with me.
0: Don't lie. I know that you've hated every second of this. <laughs> I fucking hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, well, uh, with that all said, uh, you can check out Shay where?
1: Onlyfans.com. No, uh, you can check me out on uh, Instagram at Professor Layton, uh, Twitter as Professor Layton. You can also um, check me out at swordchomp.com where I host multiple video game podcasts. And I recently just started a Japan podcast called A Day in Japan. You can find that um, on all the podcasting platforms. I'm a very busy man. I don't sleep often anymore. So <laughs> Um Yeah, I, I I mean I do all that stuff. And uh sometimes you can find me on a basketball court in Japan getting my ass crossed over by some kid ten years my junior. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, that's where you can find me and check me out.
0: Yeah, um seriously go check out Sorchomp's stuff. They are making great content all the time um you guys are just uh doing your game of the year episodes now right yeah we started uh week one today
1: mainly to do with like sound and music we had some um new categories and we brought some old ones back that were kind of like random odds and ends one next week will be all of the major ones like favorite character, favorite boss, favorite weapon, shit like that. And then we'll do one more week, which is our actual game of the year picks. So
0: yeah. very yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah.
1: But I wanna say uh thanks for having me on for this episode, man. Uh you know, I- I'm glad that even though I miss power um windows by Rush. <laughs> sorry, moving windows but moving, moving pictures, pictures by Russ. Jesus Christ. It's it's 1 a.m. here. My brain is starting to shut down. I can feel it. Uh, you, Even though you missed me having having me on for Moving Pictures by Rush, I'm happy that I got on for this episode. So thanks for giving me the opportunity because, I, I, you know, um, it's not often you get to talk about music this much in depth with somebody and they actually give a shit. So I appreciate
0: yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, and we'll obviously have you back on again. Um, I think we've already got you on the schedule for sometime in February.
1: Yeah. And that, that is going to be another very lengthy conversation because yes. I <laughs> absolutely love what we're going to be talking about. That is one of my favorites of all time.
0: Uh, that is my favorite of all time. So <laughs> my man,
1: we're gonna, um, yeah, it's going to be yeah. very similar to this conversation then.
0: Yeah, uh, 100% agreed. And I've, uh, I'm sure we'll be doing, uh, I think I've already got it on the schedule, but uh, we'll be doing Bleed American. I'm sure that we'll, at the very least, have conversations about you being on that one. Um, yeah, I'm so. I'm for that. You will not be, uh, y- you will be back on for sure. <laughs> that fucking opening riff of that album is so good. Uh, so good, so good. Yeah. Um, but thank you well, again for having me on. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, like I said, check out Shay; all of his podcasts are great, um, and what they're doing with Swordchomp is fantastic. So, Thank um, you. well, with that said, uh, next week our topic will be—oh um, my God, where's my? There we are. Okay, December eleventh. All right, uh, we'll actually be the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, with special guest Justin oh. Ruiz. So we'll have a three-man pod again next week. Um, yeah, and in the meantime, uh, as always, you can find us on social media for all things culture, Bob hunting, but not hunting pixels. I have not changed that yet. God damn it, uh, culture, Bob Slicks and the culture, Bob family of content. Uh, we're available on Twitter at culture underscore bop on Instagram at culture underscore bop and on YouTube at culture bop where I am putting the actual for real finishing touches on my Seinfeld video. <laughs> it's it's happening. <laughs> I, I'm, I'll I'm believe finally, it when I see it. I'm finally to the point where I'm like, all right, this is shit or get off the pot time. So it'll be out before the end of the year. Hopefully, um, I'm
1: almost done with Seinfeld, man.
0: Uh, well, well, now you got to watch uh, Arrested Development. I got to hold off the project so shake can watch oh, Arrested I've, Development. Oh, I've
1: seen all of Arrested Development. Oh, okay.
0: Okay. Yeah. All
1: right. I got to watch Curb Your Enthusiasm next.
0: Oh, that show. Uh, well, we can talk about that later, but that show makes me cringe, like actual. <laughs> like, uh. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll, we'll have to
1: talk about that,
0: yeah. Um... I'm available on Twitter at TheBeBotMan182, on Instagram at BeBotMan182, and on Twitch where I uh, am setting aside a schedule for streaming. I'll be back at it. Uh, the underscore Man, And finally, we got uh, Gilbeezy, who is not here with us today. Uh, he's available on Instagram at Gilbeasy's Skit. Finally... If you're looking to support this podcast or any universe we're taking as Culture Bop, then go to patreon.com slash culturebop, where we actually just hit our first goal. Uh, and pretty soon, if we continue hitting those goals, uh, more content will be on the way. So, looking forward to that. Um, yeah. So, until next time, goodbye. Home. Get the, sun. When the class work is done. All right. All right. Um before we get started, uh I was looking into some of the producers once i got back and Mm. christopher thomas apparently worked a lot with the beatles uh and i I thought that that was interesting uh i guess he was like one of the mainstays over at abbey road but then i went down a weird like clicking hole on wikipedia and arrived at the paula's dead urban legend about the beatles (laughs) yes (laughs) Oh Christ, man. There's People a documentary
1: are... on Netflix that came out many years ago that my father insisted I watched on that. Really? It was, yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> He's like
0: Paul's dead. I swear and I was like Okay. All sure. right, buddy. <laughs> okay, buddy. Dad, have you have you been drinking today?
1: All right. <laughs> yeah. That that yeah, that was uh That was a fun period of time when my dad wouldn't shut the fuck up about Paul (laughs) McCartney being dead. I love my dad. I love, I love my dad. I got tired of hearing about how Paul McCartney has actually been dead for many years.
0: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Stupid documentary. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll get right back into this.